Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a psychiatrist talks about what to consider in choosing a mental health provider. So if, you, if you're already going to church or mass and, and you know one of your uh, providers there, uh, clergy members, that a lot of them do have training in, in counseling and, and maybe that's an easy place to start. A gynecologist goes over the advantages and disadvantages of various modern birth control options. Hormonal methods are the ones that most women are familiar with overall. The most commonly used and understood is the birth control pill. And a neurologist provides an overview of muscular dystrophy. This time is, is really seeing a revolution in the care of patients with hereditary neuromuscular disease. So we can reasonably be very hopeful and encouraging to patients who are facing a new diagnosis. All that along with a selection from The Healing Muse after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll explore modern birth control methods with a gynecologist. Then, we'll get an overview of muscular dystrophy from a neurologist who specializes in neuromuscular diseases. But first, what should you consider when selecting a mental health provider? From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. How do you go about finding a mental health provider or therapist? Let's ask Dr. Thomas Schwartz. He's a professor and the interim chair of psychiatry and the senior associate dean of education for SUNY Upstate. Thanks for being here, Dr. Schwartz. Thanks for having me. So what's it like to try to find a therapist or a psychiatrist in the Syracuse metro area? I think it's likely very difficult for, for people uh, nationwide, not, not just in Syracuse. I do think there's a shortage of uh, mental health providers, and that would be psychiatrists, psychologists, clinical social workers. I, I think there are more people either developing psychiatric problems or being diagnosed with them, and there's, there's just not enough providers. So I think it is very difficult. Just a shortage across the board everywhere. Yeah. So uh, would it be even harder in rural areas because there's fewer people to begin with? And Yeah, I think we noticed that as well. And, and certainly the major metro areas will have more services. We also have more people. Uh, but yes, I suspect the, the more rural you are, the, the harder it would be to find, let's say, a psychiatrist or a psychologist. Yeah. So is it an easy answer to say why there's such a shortage? I think there's multiple factors. I think as far as psychiatry, I'm a psychiatrist. I know, know this data a little bit more. There, there certainly seem to be more and more junior psychiatrists, new psychiatrists coming into the field. It, it seems to be a more preferred area of medicine to study. But despite that, I think we have a very aging group of psychiatrists who are retiring. And so there are more people retiring than, than coming into the field. So I do think there is a, a shortage there for that reason. We have psychiatric nurse practitioners that I didn't mention before. There are more and more schools and programs, and we have one here at Upstate. And for example, the, the psychiatric workforce is being very well augmented with some good psychiatric nurse practitioners. But again, it, it's a rate that we would want to speed up or we're still going to have a shortage. Well, and um, we'll get into more about the differences of the, the different uh, professionals, but tell me about, um, are, are they solo providers? Are they part of groups? What's the landscape like professionally for mental health providers? I think it's a little bit of everything. We, we still have the traditional solo practice provider that has their own office. They're the only person in the office, though I do think that is getting more rare with time. It is really hard to run a business with one person. We, we do have some full-service clinics, um, Syracuse Behavioral Health. Uh, I believe their name changed to Helios, uh, the Brownell Center, uh, St. Joseph's Hospital. Uh, there are some very big clinics uh, with a lot of, uh, a lot of clinicians. And, and so you go the gamut from the solo provider to the, the full-service, very large clinic. So a person who has health insurance, will their health insurer find a therapist for them? If, if I called my health mm -hmm. insurance and said, I'm looking for a therapist, will they find me somebody? 
I think going through the insurance is a good idea, but to answer your question, I don't think they will personally reach out and, and find you an appointment. My, my experience is most of them will have a web-based list of providers that they will cover, and it really is up to the patient or, or the family of the patient, if they can't do it themselves, to frankly start calling. So with this type of shortage, it's not uncommon to stop at the tar start of a list, the top of a list of, of 10, 12 doctors and have to call until you find an opening. Wow. And then um, that's assuming I have insurance. If I don't have insurance, I'm probably even going to have a lot harder time, right? right? Yeah, I think in the absence of insurance, there, there's not really a list that you can find. It would make sense to start calling some of those larger clinics. And the clinics generally are set up, I think, to help people find insurance, whether mm. it's Medicaid, Medicare, uh, sometimes the exchange or the private insurances. I do think some of the larger service clinics would try to help you with that. Outside of that, you might have to shop around to find a clinician that's willing to uh, accept a cash payment. Sometimes we'll call that a sliding scale. It could be ten dollars, could be a hundred dollars, and and there are there are some they're rarer, they're harder to find, but there are some people that would work with you that way. Would a primary care provider be able? Would they have like an in with a group maybe, or help? Would you advise someone to go to their primary care provider for a referral maybe? Yeah, I actually think primary care is a great place to start. More and more, our pediatricians, family practice uh, doctors, internal medicine doctors are, are receiving more and more training in how to detect and manage, let's say, depression and anxiety. And I think primary care is the number one place that antidepressants are prescribed in the U.S. It's not from psychiatrists' office. So by volume, I do think our primary care, my primary care colleagues are doing a lot of work. So starting there actually could be an answer. You may not need therapy. You may be able to be helped with a single medication. Uh, outside of that, you're right. I, I would hope that the primary care doctors and, and clinicians you know, may have an in with certain psychiatrists or, or practices. But to be candid, many of these services are very, very full. So I wouldn't rely on the, the idea that the primary care doctor can get you in faster, though he or she could start your treatment while, right. you're, while you're waiting. Okay, okay. Yeah. good point. Well, let's talk about the difference between the, the variety of therapies um, or therapists that are out there, the social worker, psychiatrist, mm -hmm. you mentioned nurse practitioner. Yeah. Um, what's, what's the difference? So I think you have plenty of options, like if you are looking at your insurance list, there will, they'll list all these different providers that are out there, and uh, a fair amount of them can provide psychotherapy, which is uh, talk therapy uh, or counseling psychotherapy. There's lots of words we use, but a well-trained person can help you through your, your stressful events, through your depression, through your anxiety, and you have some choices. Um, I think you could even start with uh, a clergy member, uh, a pastor, a priest. Mm. Uh, it's one of those untapped resources. So if, you, if you're already going to church or mass and, and you know one of your uh, providers there, uh, clergy members, a lot of them do have training in, in counseling. And maybe that's an easy place to start. Some primary care offices will have a built-in therapist or, or your general doctor might know you the best. So I do think you can get informal counseling and therapy that way. Well, schools also have counselors, right? Absolutely. School counselors. If you're a college student, most colleges will have student counseling programs. Um, so I, I think those are great ideas. So these are untapped areas that a lot of people don't think about. From an office base, uh, professional point of view, um, social workers, uh, many of them can uh, go to school and get training to become psychotherapists, and, and, and they're very good at what they do. The psychologists, the PhDs, will go through more training, and they're very good at, at psychotherapy as well. I find that the psychologists have uh, more specified training in things like cognitive behavioral therapy, psychodynamic mm. psychotherapy. Uh, they, they get a little bit more refined in their approach, and some of those techniques are better for certain psychiatric problems than others. And then psychiatrists, we, we prescribe medications. We're also trained in psychotherapy. Uh, nurse practitioners, um, similarly. So you have lots of choices. And I think if you wanted more of a medication approach, you're going to want to find a psychiatrist or a nurse practitioner. If you really don't like medicines and you really want to focus on psychotherapy, probably a clinical social worker or psychologist would make sense. Now, what about uh, for children or adolescents? Do all of those uh, professions cover children and adolescents, or is that 
Yeah, I think the, the same would go for uh, really any age group at this point. The same kind of provider can provide the same kind of services regardless of age, though some people specialize. I'm an adult psychiatrist. I don't treat many kids. My colleagues who are child psychiatrists and child psychologists will only treat kids. So you would want to aim for somebody that's specific for your age group. So it seems like with this shortage, um, at you know, if you're in crisis, you're going to need help from whoever you can find it from. But in the in the best situation, you'd want to choose someone that you uh, get along with, right? Mm-hmm. Personalities matter somewhat, yeah. right? In therapy, so how do you, yeah. how does that factor in? So again, to be pessimistic with the shortage we're talking about, you you may not have a lot of choices. Some people would prefer a male therapist, female therapist, younger, older. But sometimes you really have to start somewhere where there's an opening, and I think that's okay. I do think it's important to find a good fit. Uh, my, my training in psychotherapy would suggest it may not matter if you're male, female, uh, old or young. It's, it's kind of what goes on in the therapy session uh, that matters the most. And I think a good therapist, regardless of their, their background, their gender, their race, their age, should be able to put themselves in your shoes. So I think a good fit's important, but but I do think a good therapist can adapt uh, and and meet the patient where they're at. So um, I I recommend finding somebody and and see how it goes. Therapy, to me, and counseling probably should be at least a few months, if not six months. Uh, Sometimes you get off on the wrong foot like we do in any relationship, and then you figure that out as you go, which is part of therapy. Mm -hmm. Uh, You make amends, you move on, you you, you figure each other's patterns out, and and that's really, to me, the best kind of therapy. You kind of grow with your your therapist. Um, So a match is good, but it it is also not the end of the world. Well, and it seems like if you're in crisis, say you're, you you know, potentially depressed or suicidal, um, you're at a low point. And this is not going to be an easy thing to find a a therapist. So what advice do you have for getting started? So I think one thing you mentioned is is suicide. We unfortunately have an epidemic. Those numbers are going up. Uh, More and more people are considering suicide, attempting suicide, completing suicide. And and I think if you're at that point, you probably need to go to your nearest emergency room. Uh, in theory, you know, there's somebody there to help you. There's always a doctor there. They might be an emergency medicine doctor. They're, they're, they're trained to help people out. Many emergency rooms have consultation services where they would call people like me to come down as well. So I think if you're in that kind of crisis and your, your life is on the line, getting to an emergency room, calling 911 makes sense. Uh, there are 800 number um, suicide hotlines that are very helpful as well. So I, I do think that kind of crisis requires you to, to seek help. If you're if you're somewhat considering it, hurting yourself, but you don't have a plan, again, I think talking to your primary care doctor, a clergy member, again, while you're trying to search through your, your insurance list to find right. somebody, it makes a lot of sense. Just getting that off your chest and the weight lifted off your shoulders about how you're feeling sometimes is, is a good preventative thing. So just talking even to family members, perhaps. But I do think if you reach the level where you may not be safe, I think a 911 call, get an ambulance to the hospital, get a family member to the hospital, let us at least start the evaluation process makes a lot of sense. Can that process lead to finding a therapist for the person? I mean, would the emergency department be able to help you? find someone in the community? So I think so. Uh, Again, there are no guarantees. Again, there is a shortage. Just going to the emergency room does not guarantee you'll have a therapist or a psychiatrist next week. Uh, That somewhat is a a rumor mill. Does it speed the process up? I I would say sometimes. Uh, Some of your bigger hospitals will have uh, a a larger uh, outpatient clinic. So St. Joseph's, for example, has a, a very good mental health center that, that, that's large and can accept more people, but they can be relatively full. Here at University Hospital, we have a very busy emergency room. We see many patients like this, but, but our outpatient clinic is very, very small. And we have less openings. So it's really unique to whatever system you enter into. Um, we always try uh, to link people up, but oftentimes you will also leave with a list. So if mm. we can shore somebody up, get them uh, to do better through an intervention where we think they can manage navigating through a list, calling a few people to get set up, we'll, we'll let them do that. Well, if it seems like the demand for mental health professionals is so high and we've got this shortage, um, would this not be a great field to get into if you want to help people? 
So I, I think so. Uh, I certainly like w what I do, and, and the field has really been in a, a shortage since uh, I've been in the business since 2000. But as I said, it's getting uh, more short. So I think it's a, it's a great opportunity for employment, uh, for growth in the profession. Um, it, it's hard work, but, but we, we do enjoy it. So I do think if you're a budding um, social worker, nurse practitioner, uh, physician assistant, uh, physician, and, and you really have an inkling towards this work, um, I think it's a great field. We, we still have, we can still talk to our patients. Uh, you know, we're not really constrained often by a five or eight minute visit. You know, we might have 15 minutes to an hour, hour and a half sometimes. So what I, I like about it is we actually get to talk to people uh, a whole ton and, and the rest of medicine seems to be speeding up, you know, more patients per hour. Yeah. So it's an enjoyable field and, and you really do get to know, know your patients. Do you go home feeling like you've made a difference in someone's life or seeing um, progress in a patient? So I, I think so. Some patients uh, takes uh, weeks to months to years to see the kind of improvements we'd like to see. Other people, you help right away. It's really a, a bell-shaped curve of, of how people respond. But I, I think it's rewarding on uh, the short-term, middle-term, and long-term level. But you have to be in the, the field long enough to see all that happen. Sure. So kind of to summarize, um, what is your advice for someone who can't easily find a therapist? What, what should they do? I think the first thing I would do is take your health insurance card. Usually on the back is an 800 number. I would call that number and ask for a list of possible providers. This is web-based. You might even be able to Google that on your own. And you start making phone calls. And if you truly don't find anybody on that list, you go through 10, 12 phone calls, I would call your insurance company back go through their phone tree, talk to a real person, and suggest you've used all their resources. They may then try to reach out. They may specifically call some of those offices to try to create an opening. But sometimes you can pressure your, your insurance company to help you out. And that would be a, a trick. The other one would be to go to your family doctor, ask if they have connections. Uh, you certainly could try the emergency room uh, or the central emergency room called CPAP. It's a psychiatric emergency room in town. You could make some phone calls and ask for advice. But I would use the list and I, and I would try to pressure your insurance company to help. Well, thank you so much. This has been an interesting topic and I appreciate your insight. Um, my guest has been Dr. Thomas Schwartz. He's professor and interim chair of psychiatry at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, modern birth control options. Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Today we're talking about birth control options with Dr. Renee Mastad. She's an assistant professor and division chief of obstetrics and gynecology at Upstate. Thank you for being here. Thank you. I thought I'd like to ask you about each type of birth control available today um, and then sort of the advantages and disadvantages of each. So um, does it make sense to start with natural methods? We can start with natural methods. Okay. Are those the most or least effective? So um, as a practicing OBGYN who, who focuses on family planning, natural methods are actually our least favorite methods of contraception. They work, what they generally, as, as most people understand natural methods, that includes what we call the rhythm method, um, which encompasses several different um, ways of tracking a woman's periods. So women obviously now have a lot of tracking apps where they can figure out when their periods start and they can help them determine what their ovulation, when they're going to ovulate. Ovulation is when a woman becomes fertile. That's when an egg is released from the ovary and is able to be fertilized by sperm. So if you time intercourse opposite of that, exactly. the hope is that you would, would miss your miss. Fertile, fertile period, fertile okay. time, I should say. Having sex in the few days before ovulation is actually what dramatically increases the risk of pregnancy or the success if you're trying to get pregnant. Um, okay. The problem with these methods, though, is that they require a woman to have a very regular cycle. 
So she has to have her period every 28 days or every 35 days, however many days in between the beginning of one period and the next period. Is that has true to be... for many women? No. Okay. And this is why it's not a favorite of ours. Um, even with some of the tracking apps, we found most of them really aren't very um, accurate. But a lot of women have various health problems that interfere with regular periods. A lot of women have um, erratic lifestyles. They travel a lot. Um, women who are, who are trying to aggressively gain or lose weight are going to have irregular periods. Um, women with irregular sleep cycles will often have irregular periods. So it's not a particularly effective means of preventing pregnancy. Additionally, it requires the couple to be compliant. So if they decide to have sex during her fertile time, then he needs to use a, a condom or they need to use some other barrier method of contraception. And that, so that requires compliance um, by both partners. Um, another natural method, though, is lactational amenorrhea, um, known as LAM. So that's after you've given birth and exactly. you're breastfeeding. Exactly. The and theory that you can't get pregnant while you're breastfeeding? So as long as a woman is exclusively breastfeeding, now she can pump and, and feed breast milk, bottle feed breast milk, but she cannot use any supplementation, no formula or anything else. So as long as she's exclusively breastfeeding, no supplementation whatsoever, um, it is effective for six months. Oh, okay. But after that, it, it doesn't work very reliably. Okay. All right. So maybe are those um, sort of the least effective? Yes, in they the are. Scheme of things. Okay. Yes. So uh, what about hormonal methods? So hormonal methods are the ones that um, most women are, are familiar with overall. Um, but the, the most commonly used and understood is the pill, the birth control pill. Um, and the birth control pill, as all of us understand it, is the combined oral contraceptive. It contains both estrogen and a progestin. And these hormones uh, prevent ovulation, thicken cervical mucus, uh, which are the two mechanisms of action of how they work. Uh, they require a woman to swallow the pill every day at roughly the same time every day. And the hormones go throughout the, the bloodstream and throughout her body to affect how um, her ovaries function. They're also very useful for uh, women who have heavy menstrual periods by decreasing the amount of bleeding that they have. They're very helpful for women who have frequent ovarian cysts. They, by suppressing ovulation or preventing ovulation, they, women just don't form the cysts as a result. Um, they're exceptionally helpful for women who have painful periods, women who have endometriosis, um, because by stopping ovulation, all of those other processes are not initiated. Um, they're very useful for, for female athletes um, who need to not have heavy periods, they need to know when their periods are going to happen to um, prevent interfering with, with competitive um, activities. Um, they really are a, a boon to women, ultimately. Um, some downsides for women who have um, uh, a genetic risk of um, developing blood clots. So. Um, that they have some kind of some abnormalities in their DNA that makes their blood clot more easily. Um, the most common being the factor, factor five Leiden mutation. These women have an increased risk of, of developing those clots both in their lungs, their, their legs, um, their brain, or even their heart um, if they use combined oral contraceptives. And um, Additionally, women who smoke over the age of 35 have an increased risk of stroke. Women with migraines that have the aura or the, kind of the pre-migraine warning signs have an increased risk of stroke. So we don't recommend those methods for, for um, these women. Now, is there a, a risk for um, breast cancer later on? Wasn't that a concern? So that, that concern goes back and forth. Okay. Um, most recently, we have found that women have a slightly increased risk of developing breast cancer, particularly with long-term use. Um, the risk decreases and goes back to normal um, after women stop using the um, estrogen-based me methods um, over time. But that risk, it seems like every few years it goes back and forth. Some years it says it's a little bit increased. Other years it says it's a little bit, in, little bit decreased. Some years it just, it's neutral. Um, so it's, at this stage of the game, I have a difficult time recommending women not use estrogen-based methods um, when they're 20, 
19, 15 mm -hmm. years old to prevent the possibility of having um, breast cancer in the future. There's so many other risk factors to breast cancer, and this is just one of them. Okay. But it's probably something to discuss with your doctor individually. Yes. So Yes. And most women don't use birth control pills for 20, 30 years, right. ultimately. They use them for, for even a few months when they're sexually active, and they go back and forth between them. So in addition to the pill, are there other hormonal methods? Yes. So about ooh, almost 20 years ago, we developed the patch and the ring. Um, and they both also have combined hormones, both estrogen and progestin. The patch is effective for one week at a time. Uh, so it gets changed out every week. Um, and it is, it is a patch that goes on the arm or the hip or the um, Some other the discreet. Back. Yes. Okay. Um, unfortunately, it matches nobody's skin tone. Um, <laughs> And then there's the vaginal ring, which fits up inside the vagina. And it can be left in place for between three and four weeks. And it gets changed out every fourth week, um, replaced every fourth week. So they, again, they have the same um, side effects, uh, contraindications as um, oral contraceptives. The advantage of these is they don't require, um, they can be useful for women who have erratic lifestyles. So when I was a resident and I was on call every third night, we frequently forgot our birth control pills for our call night and then got home at 5.30 the next day, fell asleep, and therefore went two nights without our birth control pill. Patch of the ring is great for women who have lifestyles like that. I had a patient who used to travel to Germany monthly for business. And she could never remember, she was having difficulty with the time, the time zone changes. Time zone, sure. Right. So with the patch, she didn't have to worry about, you know, take, uh, missing her dose by 6, 8, 12 hours. Now, you mentioned the ring, and it made me think of intrauterine. Are, are intrauterine devices still used or not? Yes, they've actually gained in popularity um, over the past 10 years. So um, about 10, let's see, in... 2007, um, about 1% of the female population was using intrauterine devices, and currently almost 14% of the population are using intrauterine devices. And they do require, the downside of those is they're very expensive, and they do require a healthcare provider to insert them up inside the uterus. The upside is that they're good between um, anywhere from 3 to 10 years, depending on which which type of intrauterine mm. device a woman gets. And... Um, they don't require prescriptions. They don't requ once they're placed. They don't require refills once they're inserted. Um, the great thing about them is they, if a woman is in an accident if, with her car and has a five hundred dollar deductible to pay for her car and therefore has no money to pay for anything else for the next three or four months, she still has her contraception. That's still covered. If okay. she loses her insurance, she still has her contraception. Her provider does not hunt her down and remove it if she loses her insurance. So she's going to be covered. Well, and one other um, uh, method would be barrier methods or condoms, right? Yes. That's one other. Because um, I wanted to ask you, can you recommend one type of method over another for a woman, a young woman who wants to preserve childbearing? Is there a method that's better for that than another? Or do they all work sort of, you know, they someone who wants to put off having children but wants to have children later on? Yes. So... If you're looking at a young woman who has no intention of getting pregnant for five, six years, um, then I would lean towards an intrauterine device um, or the, the um, subdermal contraceptive implant, which is a rod that fits um, inside the arm. It's about the size of a matchstick. It also requires a provider to insert it. It is good for three years. Um, it does have progestin only. It does not have any estrogen, so it's useful for the women who um, can't use estrogens, women with plug clotting disorders, um, et cetera. Um, so that will cover her for three years at that point. It does have the downside of possible bleeding irregularities as far as pap smears, I mean, sorry, as far as um, periods are concerned. So some women don't like the unpredictability of the bleeding potentially. But it is also another one of those what we call no-brainer birth control where it doesn't require you know refills um, and you don't lose it if you lose your insurance. So for a woman who, who is, particularly if she's just starting out her life, has an entry-level job that doesn't have good insurance benefits, if she can get one of those, that will have her covered for several years. If this is a woman who's finishing up grad school, got married last year, and plans to start trying for pregnancy in six or eight months, I really wouldn't recommend any of those methods. I would lean more towards the um, combined hormonal methods like the pill, the patch, the ring, um, or 
if her partner is diligent, um, the two of them remembering barrier methods like condoms. Both male and female condoms are effective when used appropriately. Um, she could also potentially use the sponge um, or the cervical cap if she hasn't had children yet. Um, those can be acquired without, uh, without a prescription just from the drugstore. Um, then there's the diaphragm, which has become harder to find because it has fallen out of popularity because it is a bit cumbersome because it does have to be inserted prior to sex. Um, but that is also another option that they're all very effective if they're used every single time a woman has sex. Wow. Lots of options, it sounds like. Yes. So um, what about, we haven't talked about sexually transmitted diseases, but do any of these methods protect against sexually transmitted diseases? So the most effective way to prevent sexually transmitted diseases is using condoms. Um, both male and female condoms are very effective in preventing um, bacterial diseases like gonorrhea, chlamydia, um, viral diseases like HIV. Um, HPV and herpes are both skin-to-skin -skin contact diseases, and neither male or female condoms cover all genital skin that is in contact during um, sexual intercourse, but by decreasing the surface area, they will decrease the risk of transmission, but not completely. Hmm. Okay, good to know. And can a young woman, say under the age of 18, um, in New York State, are they able to get birth control without parental consent? Yes, they are. So just set up an appointment with any sort of doctor? Yes. Um, I don't know 100%, but I think there's also ways that it can even make it to the patient, the young woman's um, insurance if it goes to their parents without them knowing exactly what was done. Okay. But a lot of women just choose to use their own money. They'll often go to a, a local Planned Parenthood where they can get a sliding scale cost. Well, I was also going to ask about the cost of these. You mentioned like the IUD being expensive, but does insurance cover birth control for men and women or... So currently, with the Affordable Air Care Act, um, all methods of at least one type of one type of, of contraceptive from all the different methods have to be covered. So at least one brand of birth control pills, at least one type of the patch in the ring, which unfortunately is only one type at this point. Um, at least one intrauterine device has to be covered. At least one implant has to be covered, um, and without the copays. So. At this point in time, women who have any of the plans under the Affordable Care Act um, will can access these methods. Um, but like the IUD and the uh, subdermal contraceptive implant, they're both they're looking at anywhere between five and hundred and a thousand dollars. So it's a high upfront cost, but that means no copays, nothing else for the next several years. So ultimately, they do um, save the patient money. Um, Colorado performed a study that found that for every dollar the state of Colorado, uh, actually it was, a, it was privately funded initially, but for every dollar that was spent on the IUDs and the implant, um, $6 was saved overall. Mm. So it makes fiscal sense to have these methods covered because you ultimately have uh, fewer unplanned pregnancies, um, you have fewer teen pregnancies. More importantly, Colorado actually decreased the teen pregnancy rate by twice that of the rest of the country by making these methods the, the um, IUDs and implants easily available. Well, there's lots to consider, and it's uh, good to know there's a lot of options for, for people. So I appreciate you being here. My guest has been Dr. Renee Mastad, an assistant professor and division chief of obstetrics and gynecology at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, what you need to know about muscular dystrophy. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Muscular dystrophy causes progressive loss of muscle strength, and people who have it are usually cared for by a neurologist who specializes in muscular dystrophy. Upstate has Dr. Deborah Bradshaw. She's a professor of neurology who cares for patients in the muscular dystrophy clinic, and I thank you for being here today with me. Thank you for having me. I think we hear um, muscular dystrophy, and if we don't have someone in our life who's got muscular dystrophy, we probably don't understand what it is. 
So how do you describe it? It's a group of disorders, not just one type, that are hereditary, meaning passed down in the family. And they can affect other parts of the body, but they primarily affect the muscles. And their main symptom is progressive loss of muscle strength. Okay. And that, um, you said there's a, a group of them. There's different mm -hmm. types of muscular dystrophy? Yes. And um, they're inherited in different ways. Uh, the most common form is Duchenne muscular dystrophy, and that is uh, uh, passed down in a so-called X-linked manner. So the gene for that is carried on the X chromosome. Male. Um, well, women have two X's, and men have one X and one Y. Okay. And because this is carried on the X chromosome, women have another X to make up for it, if you will, whereas men have only one X. So if there's a, a genetic error on their one X, it shows, in a sense, much more dramatically than it would in the women. So, so Duchenne appears as much more visible in boys than it is in girls. It is, okay. Yeah. And it's you said it's the most common form? Yes. Of muscular dystrophy. So how does someone uh, learn that they have this disease? Usually the, usually the diagnosis is in childhood, and um, typically the, the children don't progress as normally they should. They may not sit at the right time or certainly stand or walk. So those are called... Um, motor milestones, and those would be delayed. And so typically those would come to the attention of the pediatrician who would then refer uh, the child to a neurologist. So I was going to ask that too. Does it, It's usually a primary care provider who starts beginning to think something may not be right, and they, they would just then um, refer to someone like yourself. For... Right. It would usually first come to the attention of the pediatrician, and then the first very simple test that can be done to screen for it is something called a CPK. It's a blood test. And people with muscle disease, uh, you could say, leak this um, enzyme into their bloodstream. And so the CPK is, can be markedly elevated. So if you have a child who's weak or not progressing normally and has an elevated CPK, then that's some that's muscular dystrophy until proven otherwise. And do you have to do other things to prove? Yes, so that begins a cascade of, you know, testing and evaluations. Um, in the old days, we had to do a lot of muscle biopsies, taking a piece of muscle, staining it, looking at it under the microscope to figure out what was wrong with the muscle. Increasingly, we use genetic testing right off the bat. You know, it doesn't require a painful procedure, uh, just a blood sample, or better yet, often a saliva sample. And the cells can be examined for you know, genetic errors that, that would explain the patient's weakness. Interesting. And and it's usually children, like you say, but are, are there some forms that don't really surface till adulthood? Or There are. In fact, there are a number of forms that, that show up either in young adulthood or even in midlife. So it's quite a, it's quite a interesting and, and complex range of diseases that we see in the MDA clinic. One thing that um, is a common misunderstanding is that um, people who come to the MDA clinic, that's muscular dystrophy clinic, all have muscular dystrophy. In fact, the MDA covers, MDA clinic treats a variety of nerve and muscle diseases, many of which are not actually muscular dystrophies. Oh. So, for example, another common disease that we treat is Charcot-Marie-Tooth uh, neuropathy. So that's a hereditary condition, not of muscle, but of nerve. So the MDA um, umbrella covers a, a lot of uh, disorders um, of nerve and muscle, neuromuscular disorders, and the majority, but not all, are hereditary. So there are some other things that are autoimmune, like myasthenia gravis, that come under that umbrella too. And naturally, the same specialists who would do muscular dystrophy would also take yes. care of Yes. So within neurology, there's a specialty called neuromuscular disease, separate boards, separate training, extra training. And so neuromuscular specialists are the ones that, um, that see 
the muscular dystrophy patients. Now, what do you say to um, a family with a new diagnosis um, with of muscular dystrophy in a child? What what is sort of today? What is the outlook for that child? Well, of course, it's a devastating uh, realization, you know, for parents to understand that their child has has a disease of any type, and neuromuscular disease. The muscular dystrophies are degenerative, meaning they get worse. Um, and many of them are associated with a limited lifespan. So that's always a very, um, very difficult experience for the family and patients to go through. But <laughs> this decade, or this time, is, is really seeing a revolution in the care of patients with neuro, hereditary neuromuscular disease. So, so uh, we, can, we can reasonably be very hopeful and encouraging to patients who are facing a new diagnosis that, that things are changing, changing rapidly, and there's a lot of hope. Well, I definitely have some more questions for you, for you about that. Um, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Deborah Bradshaw, a professor of neurology at Upstate who specializes in neuromuscular diseases, including muscular dystrophy. Um, so once you have the diagnosis, how is this treated? Well, it depends on the diagnosis, of course. Um, the muscular dystrophies are the hereditary ones, and the treatment options are, are fewer. We do not have cures. Uh, in that group, we tend to work on physical therapy, occupational therapy, maximizing, you know, the patient's ability to function. So we have our in our clinic, we have a physical therapist, an occupational therapist, um, who can be, see the patient and the family at every visit. They focus on, you know, what problems the patient is having in their daily lives, what things they're having trouble, whether it's going to school or working or even getting around the home. And then we try to um, arrange for support, um, whether it be, um, you know, uh, ankle braces or walk assist or, you know, in, in the advanced stage, often folks... Um, need uh, power mobility devices or power wheelchairs that can greatly enhance the patient's ability to do what they need to do. So we, we try to focus on, once we have a diagnosis, we try to focus on helping the patient do as much as they possibly can. Mm. Now, there are other disorders under the MD umbrella that are treatable, treatable now not just treatable in the future. So myasthenia gravis is a good example of that. That's a condition where the immune system attacks the muscle and causes weakness. And we have excellent treatments for that. And people can go into remission and lead normal lives now. Another example would be um, autoimmune muscle disease, polymyositis, dermatomyositis, where the immune system is attacking the muscle and causing me causing inflammation. We can use uh, medications to suppress that inflammation, get a good return of strength and a good return of function. So the treatment depends on the diagnosis. Did I read about a drug being approved recently for muscular dystrophy, though? You did, and that's a big deal. Um, there's a, a drug now that's FDA-approved for Duchenne muscular dystrophy, and it was approved in... Um, based on fairly limited data on a fairly limited number of kids. But what was striking is that the drug, so um, let me back up just a little bit. Duchenne muscular dystrophy causes, uh, is associated with a failure to produce a certain important protein in the muscle called dystrophin. And um, this drug, and, and boys with Duchenne muscular dystrophy, create no dystrophin. If you if you look at their muscle under a microscope and stain it for dystrophin, there is no dystrophin whatsoever. And that's sort of, it's a, it's an architectural protein. It like, makes the muscle strong. And so without that, the muscle gets weak. With this drug, boys started making dystrophin. So that's just wow revolutionary. Mm -hmm. We do not we don't know yet how much is going to affect the function of the boys, but there's some or there was some early evidence that it helped them walk longer, walk further, actually function better. 
So that, you know, that's a revolutionary, um, it, it's, a, it's, it's a huge turn of events. So, and then there's a whole class of drugs similar to that that they're using to apply to a lot of different genetic disorders. So, so there's going to be a lot of uh, change in, you know, the near future very quickly. And some of these disorders that were previously thought to be untreatable are, are going to be treatable now. So it's a genetic um, disease. Are, are we looking at genetic fixes? Yes, actually patches, if you will. So they've figured out a way to, to deliver medications that go in and sort of patch the genetic error and make it. Uh, we haven't been able to make them go away completely, but we've been, been able to make certain uh, types of them less damaging so the body can uh, function better. So yes, we're talking about genetic fixes. And the really big thing that's happening, I was just in the MDA uh, clinical conference in Washington earlier in the spring, and you know there was a lot of excitement because of ateplersin, the Duchenne drug, and others that are on the horizon. But um, the really stunning thing that I saw for the first time there was gene therapy for another disease that's under the MDA umbrella. It's called spinal muscular atrophy. You could think of it as it's a cousin of Lou Gehrig's disease, mm -hmm. okay. um, but it occurs in children and it's genetically based, whereas Lou Gehrig's disease generally is not. So this causes, um, and it's not the muscle that's the site of damage, it's the the nerve cell that supplies or drives the muscle or the motor neuron. And um, spinal muscular atrophy uh, causes progressive weakness. Um, there's a, uh, the worst form of it, type 1, is seen in newborns. And uh, they have very little ability to move, to breathe, to suck, uh, etc. And their lifespan is usually two years maximum. So... Um, they have been working on something called um, gene therapy, and, and we saw evidence, video evidence of this at the meeting. So these children, they're using a benign virus, which doesn't reproduce itself. They're inserting literally the missing gene into this virus, and they give one shot, one injection to the infant as soon as possible after birth, and and the virus delivers the missing gene into the motor neurons. And the babies are now growing. They're sitting up. Wow. They're standing. Some of them are walking. And these are children who would normally not survive the age of two. Wow. For yeah. you to be seeing video evidence of that, you had to, that must have blown your mind. To... It was spine tingling. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's so exciting. I, I really appreciate you coming to talk about all this. Um, my guest has been Professor of Neurology, Dr. Deborah Bradshaw. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now... Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Donna Emerson is a freelance photographer and author of six books of poetry. She lives now in California and sent us a poem about living through one of their recent terrible fires. Here is her poem, In the Retelling. I dream of yellow-orange flames flashing through pine trees. Stifling smoke startles me awake. I don't hear a smoke alarm. I bolt up, grab my crutches my fifth night after knee surgery, drag my new leg to the back door. Sickly yellow light through the house. I can't make out flames through the ochre off-color haze outdoors. But seeing our trees bent back by strong north wind, choking on smoke, I slam the door shut. Big fire blowing south, I say. The clock says 2.30 a.m. I cannot rouse my husband, who, also dreaming, says, bad time for a fire. I stumble to my sick room, the house now in ghostly light, all the usual shapes not themselves. In scattered shadows I misstep, 
fall against the heavy bed frame, my head hitting the headboard. I lie on the floor, confused. Get up, this is a serious fire, I shout toward my husband as I turn on the television. Fire everywhere, jumping roads, even the freeway, Fountain Grove, Bennett Valley, Coffee Park, no warnings, people running, screaming, but the fire outruns them. Cars blocked by fire, hospitals emptying, Petalumans prepare to evacuate. That's us. We pack up family photographs, the Emerson Bible, the Roseville vase Dad never let us touch, silver baby shoes, mother's and grandmother's journals, my own. What of those thousands of people who have not even a minute to take one piece of clothing? Our house does not burn. We cough on smoke, wear face masks for weeks. My asthma requires triple medications. My leg slowly heals. I can't get out to help except hold the hands of those who need to talk, rage, fall apart with a witness. Sometimes recovery is in the retelling. The carpet man spent an hour extra yesterday showing me a photo of his tidy house in Coffee Park and then his black, barren, empty plot after the October fire. His wife awakened at 1.50 a.m. to see their garage and all trees outside ablaze. They left at 2 a.m., October 8, with their three-year-old, two cats, two Rottweilers. No hotel would take them. They drove to his buddies in Salinas. At last, he showed me his new two-story house, as if it were a new child, just built in the same spot as the old. It's all about insurance, he says. I wonder later how often he tells the story as he makes his daily calls. Sometimes recovery is the rebuilding, proving you're still alive, that you saved yourself. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, skin care for seniors, plus a discussion about palliative care. If you missed any of today's show, listen on our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. Music